Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us again this night and we do pray that you would help us to learn from each other, to teach each other, to encourage and be encouraged by each other, that as we minister and serve one another, we might bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ and that we may grow up to be more and more like him. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're looking all this uh, term at evangelism and the purposes of God and uh, I want to welcome any who are new amongst us. There seems to be always rolling in a few more new people and so we're always glad to have you with us. Tonight we're going to be looking at the how of evangelism um, and uh, we need to be praying for one another and uh, thanking God for the missions that we've seen over the, uh, over the last uh, little while. Over the last few weeks then we've gone through the purposes of God and so just to, because we missed last week and because we just need reinforcement, here is the quick run through what we've gone over the last little while. Firstly, we looked at God's purposes. That is, the sovereign creator is working everything out to achieve his purpose. And his purpose is to have every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father evangelism then we looked at and evangelism is the proclamation that by his death and resurrection God's son Jesus Christ has become both Lord and King the only saviour of the world and so put those together evangelism in the purposes of God central to the purposes of God are Jesus death and resurrection and also proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of na- uh, forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. As central to Christianity as the cross and resurrection is gospel preaching. Without the gospel preaching, the cross and resurrection do not come to the world. Without the cross and resurrection, there's no gospel to preach. So the why of evangelism, well, evangelism is central to the plan of God for this period of history, and it brings God glory. Thank you for helping with the microphone. It brings us God glory. It brings into effect the work of Jesus' death and resurrection. It brings salvation to the world. It's motivated by love. That is our love of God. Sorry, the love of God for us and also our love for God. And because of God's love for us, our love for others. And so evangelism is the evidence of grace. It's not a new commandment. We've got an 11th commandment, 10 in the Old Testament, 1 in the New Testament. You've got to, you've got to go and evangelize. No, the New Testament commandment is you should love one another. By this will men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But if you have received the grace of God in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then the sign of receiving that grace is the fact that you will be concerned for other people's salvation. So last time we looked at the hue of evangelism, we went to a psalm, 107, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. We looked at Mark 8, yes, thank you, that that you've got to deny yourself, take up the cross, follow Jesus. Whoever will lose his life will save it, but whoever whoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's. Being a Christian is giving your life for the gospel cause. Also, they were all scattered. And those who were scattered went about preaching the word of God. 
Acts 8, that's correct. And who are the all that are scattered? Everyone but the apostles, that's right. All the Christians except the apostles in Jerusalem were scattered, but they were the ones who preached the God, the word of God. Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Where does that one come from? Yes, the start of 1 Corinthians 11. He's just told them that everything he does, he does for the salvation of others. And then he says, so be a follower of me as I'm a follower of Jesus. Be imitate me as I imitate Christ. And then he also tells the church to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Colossians chapter 4, that's right. And then he tells somebody to do the work of an evangelist. Timothy, yes. In which letter? 2 Timothy 4, and you're right on. Yes, good. Have confidence, brother. 2 Timothy 4, right? That is, there are people who are evangelists, but there's no demarcation dispute. Only evangelists can evangelise. In fact, Timothy, by preaching the word, urgence in season, out of season, is doing the work of evangelism. That's what we looked at last time, the who, and tonight we come to the how. The how of evangelism. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts 20, Acts 20, where we hear the great evangelist Paul describing what he did in Ephesus. Acts 20. As he passes by that way, he calls upon the elders of the church at Ephesus to meet him at a place called Miletus, and there he tells them about what he did, how he did it, and what they should now do to follow this up. And after we've read it, I want you to, in your groups, discuss two questions. What did Paul do, and what did Paul preach? I'll tell you that before we read it, so you'll be a, a bit more aware of what did Paul do, and what did he preach? Acts 20, I'm picking up from verse 17, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him and when they came to him he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention, and then he tells them what they should be doing. So, two questions. What did Paul do? What did Paul preach? Verse 18, he was living among them, yes? Serve the Lord with all humility. And with tears and trials, yes? 
Yes, he didn't shrink from it. He didn't pull back from it, yes? Yes, he testified to both Jews and Greeks, the same message, yes? He endured, yes? Yes, both publicly and privately, he taught, yes? He travelled around, okay. What did he preach? Repentance towards God. The whole counsel of God. The kingdom, yes, thank you. The gospel of the grace of God. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as they left that for you, didn't they? That was very kind of them, yes. He would speak on anything that was profitable. He'd speak on the whole counsel of God. But that is the kingdom of God. That is the grace of God that is in Christ Jesus. That is, he, he didn't hold back anything as profitable because he preached to them repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus. But that's what he had to testify to them. Right? The, the bottom line, the, the sales pitch at the end was repentance towards God and belief in the Lord Jesus. And that's what we'll be looking more at in the next hour and a half is this repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus. But we'll have a history spot right now. Uh, and uh, I want you to tell me who is the most famous person that was born and raised in Barrel, New South Wales. Don Bradman. Good. Well, that's well done. Don Bradman. That's pretty safe, right? Fairly famous man. Apart from playing cricket as a little boy, what else did Don Bradman do? Did he go to church? He sang in the choir of the church. So, fascinating pieces of information. Kingsford Smith sang in the choir at St Andrew's Cathedral. But as you don't know who Kingsford Smith is, that doesn't help you much, does it? There's an airport named after him, yes, yes, that may give you a clue as to who he is, but anyway, Don Bradman sang in the choir at uh, the Anglican Church in Barrel. What other famous person sang in the choir with him as a little boy? This man, when he was about uh, uh, 10 or 11, had to come to Sydney because he had asthma and it was considered to be a dangerous place for him to be in barrel because of his asthma. So he, his widowed mother came and brought him to Sydney. His father had died in the First World War. So it was just his mum and him. And that's a hard way to be raised because you and I have lost touch with the fact that there were so many widows after the First World War. There were so many little boys and girls who were being raised without a father after the First World War. And getting married again was very difficult because there was a great shortage of men as a result of the First World War. It really did affect that generation. And so he was raised here in Sydney, but he was a very bright little boy. And so won a scholarship and actually continued to win scholarships. He was also quite athletic, which was interesting for the asthmatic to become very athletic, but that's not unknown either. Became a, a miler. And so he went to the University of Sydney and uh, on a scholarship because he could not afford to go any other way. In fact, if he failed one subject, he'd lose his scholarship and would have to leave university. But he studied medicine at the University of Sydney and won a blue in athletics and became quite a famous miler and two-miler uh, representing the community in athletics. Anyone got the idea who I'm talking about yet? After training in medicine, uh, but it was in high school days, he actually became a Christian. 
there he'd gone to church he'd sung in the choir and that kind of thing but he heard of an Irish evangelist uh, coming to Sydney who called the bishops uh, the bishop a stinking polecat and he thought that sounds like an interesting preacher to go and hear so he went to hear the bishop tell about the bishop sorry this preacher this Irish preacher telling about bishops being stinking polecats and got converted in the process uh, the Irishman was a man called W.P. Nicholson I'll tell you about him some other day. Great evangelist was W.P. Nicholson. This man, though, went on to university, found the Christians in university, and during the time became more and more aware of the need for Christian missionaries, and so became a missionary in Tanganyika, which is today Tanzania, uh, and uh, went there in the late 1930s to be a missionary doctor in Tanzania. Any of you any wiser yet as to who this person is? Not yet. He, he returned after only a few years because his wife was desperately sick and he never actually went back to being a missionary. So he was only there for a few years. But in 1941-42, in the beginning of the war period, he came back to Sydney and he started radio broadcasts. And he was 40-odd years every week on the radio. But he did all kinds of other things in the process. He started writing storybooks for children and for adults, and he continued to do this for the rest of his life. In fact, at one stage, he was the most published and most translated Australian author. He also took up a job as a rheumatologist in Macquarie Street and worked there a couple of days a week to keep his family alive because his wife was in hospital pretty well permanently. Uh, she never really recovered from her illnesses. She, he raised his two children and he was, so he's raising his children, his wife in hospital, working a couple of days a week as a rheumatologist, while at the same time writing books, being on the radio, and became the national director of the AFES uh, and travelled all across Australia, setting up Christian groups for the AFES. Uh, in the universities of Australia. Still no clue? He was the Richard Chin of his day, you see. But whereas Richard Chin does it full time, he did it at the same time as doing all these other things. The jungle doctor, you've got him. Paul White, the jungle doctor. There is the man. Lovely man he was. He did so much for the cause of the gospel here in Australia and around the world. 120 different uh, translations of his books and especially doing children's work missions here there and everywhere he just was a man of great humor great energy great enterprise but i saw his gravestone and there it is in loving memory of paul hamilton hume white uh, oam mbbs the Jungle Doctor, there's his date of birth, and look at the text. To live is Christ, to die is gain. That was him. He was who I want us to be. Everything he did in his life was for the cause of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was always on the cutting edge of what could be done. This man is one of the most important men for your history. More important than Don Bradburn. Much more important than Don Bradburn. In fact, eternally more important than Don Bradburn. As a result of his work, 
Christian unions are on campuses all across Australia. As a result of his work, Christianity, the Crusader Union owns a slight a plot of land up in uh, Lake Macquarie where they run camps. He was the man who found that and persuaded people to buy it. There are all kinds of things that Paul White did for us that, well, when we get to glory, we'll see what it was. But I want to give you a little taste of his uh, Jungle Doctor fables. They are great teaching aids for children. He, he wrote 50 or 60 different books and they are now, you can get them now, I'm going to play half of one for you, uh, as he spoke of the different animals and used animal fables to convey gospel truths. And he was a great one for going to churches and speaking to the children in such a way that the adults could understand. And many an adult got converted listening to Paul White's children's stories, which were quite manifestly children's stories. We used to use things called film strips. I can't explain it to you now. It's just a little complicated. But out of these film strips, someone has now very kindly made YouTubes, uh, some YouTube of it. So here is part of one of Paul White's Jungle Doctor fables called Out on a Limb. Uh, the Pungary talks of is the great um, uh, machete that is being spoken of. I think you've got six minutes of it, so sit back, relax, it moves slowly. <laughs> this is one of 50, 60 different children's story, but this is the one that he used to explain the meaning of repentance. It's all he's doing, but he captures you. But he put together stories that were told around the world and translated around the world and children were raised on them. You know, when he was my age, uh, I interviewed him at a mid-year conference. Um, and it was in 1986. Uh, I interviewed him. The interview goes for about an hour and 20 minutes. You're not going to get it now. But I'll tell you where it is so that you can get it. You can download it from uh, Philip Jensen. Uh, it's a life lived for the gospel, Dr. Paul White. But I'll give you a little snippet, a three-minute snippet of Paul answering my questions and uh, making fun of me, as he did. Great wit, great sense of humour. He and I loved talking with each other and seizing each other endlessly. And here is three minutes about how he became such an evangelist, how he became such uh, a preacher of the gospel. Here we go. Okay, what are the five things you've got to do? That's really good teaching, you see, isn't it? Very simple. Classic Paul White. A man of great brain, so much so that he could make things simple absolutely clear. That's a, any idiot can make it more complicated. You actually have to be on top of your subject to make it simple. And he aimed at talking to children so as to keep it as simple as possible and saw all kinds of adults converted because they finally understood what was being said. But notice what he said, the two things you've got to concentrate. What are the two things of the five H's you've got to concentrate on? The hook and the hit. They're the two that really matter, the hook and the hit. 
We're talking tonight about the hit. That is, how do you actually propose for a person to become a Christian? How do you finish off the very talk that we're talking about? Right, here are the six pictures we have and the six verses of the two ways to live. And although the wording on each page actually gives us more than just that you have in the verse, the verse is critical to the central idea of each page, each diagram. But because God has created everything, he is the ruler and creator of, every, of everything, and has created us to rule the world under him. But we all like sheep have gone astray. So it's a beautiful verse for us to use because it captures the heart of sin. Most people are concerned about breaking rules and regulations rather than rejecting the creator. Because that's what sin is about. We all And we reject the creator just by doing our own thing. Because we're not doing his thing. We're doing our own thing. And so the judgment falls upon us. That verse in Romans 9.27 is really good because it talks about not just death is the wages of sin, but after death there is the judgment. Without going into too much detail about the nature and character of hell, because the Bible doesn't go into much detail about the nature and character of hell. And then picking up the Isaiah 53 uh, verse again, because the second half of that verse is a wonderful description of the death of Jesus. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Getting a good resurrection verse is a much more difficult thing. But the key part we're trying to bring out of it is that Jesus has risen to be the Lord of heaven and earth, but he brings us resurrection as well. We're born again through his resurrection. And so now live with Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. And then the last of the pictures is the John 3.36, which spells out the two ways to be living. We're either believing in the Lord Jesus Christ or we're not, and we either have life or we have death. So that's the passage. We've looked at each of the six pages over the last few weeks. It's this one that we really need to look at tonight because here is repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul went from house to house, preaching publicly and privately, repentance towards God, faith in the Lord Jesus. And so our way is to reject God as a ruler, to live our own life. But when we do that, we are damaged. We damage ourselves and we damage each other as well. And we will face death and judgment. But God's new way that comes in the gospel is to submit to Jesus as our ruler. We're not using the word faith. Why aren't we using the word faith? We're not using the word repentance. Why don't we use the word repentance? We rely upon Jesus' death and resurrection. And if that is the case, then because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we're forgiven by God and given new and eternal life. So, which way do you want to live, is the question we put before people. Well now, repent and believe is what we're saying on that sheet. But we don't say it. Why? 
Basically because our community not only doesn't understand, repent and believe, they actually misunderstand, repent and believe. It's worse than not understanding. Not understanding you can explain. But when it's misunderstood, your explanation doesn't work either for them. And so what do people mean by the word repent? Well, they mean feel sorry. Uh, apologise uh, is what they mean. And you'll notice modern apologies, you don't actually apologise that you've done something wrong, you apologise that you've hurt the other person. You don't say, I've done the wrong thing, I am sorry to you. You say, I'm really sorry for hurting you. Actually, I'm not sorry I did it because it was right to do and you're hypersensitive and your problem, but if it all kind of public relations wise solved the issue between us, I'll tell you I'm sorry for hurting you. It's the, how to apologise without apologising. But that's not repentance anyway. Repentance is not feeling sorry. Repentance is, see this is where the fable is so clever, over and over again, change your mind. Let your changed mind move your feet. Go in the opposite direction. Come back. Don't continue that way. Turn around. Come. That's the concept of repentance. The, the word means change of mind. But it's such a change of mind that you now live differently. I used to think this and live this way, but I now think that and live that way. That's the concept of repentance. It's the complete change of mind and direction of living that is being spoken of. And so, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned each one to our own way. Stop! Turn back. Stop living your own way. Now turn back to God and submit to Jesus as your ruler, rather than yourself ruling your own life. So it's a change of mind that is genuine and so leads to changed behaviour. That's repentance. But what about faith in the Lord Jesus? Well, the word faith is a real problem for us. So here's a little discussion for us to get ourselves going on this word faith. A few questions for you. The first one is, to draw, and I'm very happy if you actually physically draw, you don't have to, but uh, if you could, a little diagram would be helpful. The relationship between these four words, to believe, to know, to trust and faith. What's the relationship between those words? And then what does everybody have faith in? What can we know without faith? And who can we know without faith? So we'll spend a little bit of time because they'll just clarify for us what we're meaning by this word faith. What do you reckon about uh, putting these four words together? How do you connect those four words? They can all be relational, yes? So we can all have an object to them, but the object could be a person or people, yes? Got a Venn diagram, this is good. Can you explain the Venn diagram or do you have to draw it? We have faith on one side, and we have knowledge on the other side, and the the the, the, the left join um, is blind faith, because it, whereas the middle is reasoned faith, because it has knowledge and trust come together. 
Reason's not there and blind's not there, but thank you. Yes? <laughs> what did you say as a connection? You did flow. What was your flow? Just the same. <laughs> <laughs> Theirs was so complicated, I'd like to hear yours then. Uh, again, there's no belief, trust, faith. Knowing being sort of having the information, believing, considering the information to be true, trust being active for that information, and faith being uh, dependence being the action to the information. Yes, what did you come up with? Ah, no belief and trust to the three circles, but the faith is where it all overlaps. Okay, thank I can understand his Venn diagram without looking at it, yes? Well, we got really confused about the word... We got confused, yes? Because the, like, I feel like our, my Australian friends use the word faith really differently to how my Christian friends use the word faith. What does everybody have faith in? Themselves? Capitalism, the value of education, they have faith in science, faith in gravity. What they think is true, yes? The chair's working. The chair is working, thank you very much. Gravity, we all have faith in gravity. Does that mean gravity doesn't work if we don't have faith in it? Ah, so faith is the same as knowledge. <laughs> no. No. We all have faith in a bus driver, okay. What can we know without faith? Julius Caesar existed. There's no faith involved in that. No. They're not agreeing with you in this next group. You would have said nothing. Yeah. So you have faith before you can know something. You need faith before you can know something. So knowledge relies upon faith. You've got to have faith that your eyes aren't playing tricks on you. And your mind, you've got to have faith in your mind that the, uh, what you're seeing you can understand. Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, we said nothing. Nothing. Uh, this is one of those occasions where saying nothing sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> but what can we know without faith? And your answer is? Um, your ability to reason. Our ability to reason. Right? So we don't have faith that we are able to reason. We reason that we have <laughs> reason. Yeah. What did you say over here? If you keep doubting everything, you wind up with I think, therefore I am, which is actually wrong. And I think, therefore I think. You can't actually know that you am because of that. You see these issues, these words run around and around, don't they? It's a real problem for us to actually unravel it. One of the great books for unraveling it is the book by Jim Packer called... Uh, um, fundamentalism and this word, word, word of God fundamentalism and the word of God it's an absolute classic on helping you ravel, unraveling just this issue of what is faith what is knowledge, what is trust what is belief etc uh, let me help you a little bit by saying that the word belief and the word faith is exactly the same word in Greek. So anyone making any distinction between believing and faith from the Bible is not saying what the Bible is saying, because it's exactly the same word. However, faith is a noun, whereas believe is a verb. Believe has a noun form, belief. So belief equals faith. They're exactly the same thing. 
in modern English or Australian English, as when he would put it for us, yes, people distinguish between faith and belief. I think in modern Australian they talk about, and I, one of the groups said it, I think, correctly. Uh, knowledge is that which you are certain of. Believe is that what you think you that you're committed to. Uh, trust is what you rely upon. And faith, you see, you're moving from certainty to uncertainty between those words in modern Australian English. But the Bible doesn't. Doesn't make that distinction at all. And so our communication to our friends is very difficult in this area. See, here's Richard Dawkins, the atheist. He says, faith is a form of mental illness. That makes it difficult for Christians, doesn't it? Faith, he says, is, isn't based on evidence. Uh, and it's the principal vice of any religion. So faith is a mental illness that is a vice. But it's belief that is not based on evidence. Well... That's not how the Bible uses it. Then faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the needs to think and evaluate evidence. In fact, he wound up saying faith is superstition. Now, what he means is what many Australians believe. So that when we use the word faith, they are not listening to what we mean. So we've got to stop using the word, frankly. But see, Dawkins, there's nothing new in Dawkins. So here's an old book, The Survival of God in the Scientific Age. 85 cents. <laughs> uh, that's been a lot of fun. 1966. And uh, Alan Isaac was an atheist scientist of some repute uh, back in the 60s. So he's 66, how many years ago is that? Um, 50, whatever it is, right? Uh, and so he writes about faith, and it just could have been exactly Dawkins. We can define faith. Faith is a mental process which replaces reason in deciding human belief or behaviour. So you can think about things, or you can have faith. They're quite contrary, you see. Uh, reason then is a mental process for deciding human belief or behaviour in which conscience thoughts are marshalled and correlated according to the rules of logic. However, he recognises that this is a problem. Because he says, you, yeah, we've contrasted faith and reason as alternative methods for deciding human belief and action. Something like faith, though, is required before reason itself can be accepted as universally valid. Even he could see there's a problem in defining it that way. But he continues on to define it exactly that way and basically calls Christians stupid. Um, what is more difficult to understand is the faith of the followers in accepting the authority of what no longer purports to be historically, scientifically or morally accurate documents. So the Bible's untrue scientifically, it's untrue morally, it's untrue historically. Why on earth are you still believing it? He says, the probable answer to the question is implied by our definition of faith. Totally circular argument. Some people have certain emotional motivations which are so strong that no rational motivations are able to suppress them. 
In other words, if you're a Christian believer, you are intellectually, psychologically, psychiatrically sick. It's a form of mental illness. So what Dawkins is saying in the 21st century is what has been consistently said for 60 odd years. There's nothing new. But when you have a meme going for 60 years, a large number of people believe it. And so frankly, faith is just a useless word to use. Trust, I think, is the easiest one to go for as an alternative. Because trust has got nothing necessarily to do with rationality, but yet you can't reason anything without trust. You've got to trust your ability to reason. You've got to trust that you can see the evidence as your eyes are not playing tricks with you. You trust, but also you put your trust in something, you should reason to that so that it's, you see that it's trustworthy, the thing that you're going to trust. So trust is a word, but trust is also a lovely, it's more clearly a, a, a relational word. Faith comes across as a religious word. Trust comes across as a relational word. And we are in the relationship with God. So it's a much better word to be using is to trust or to rely. So here then is the, the idea. Acts 20.21, 20, you've got to turn to God in repentance and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you're doing. But how can you tell people to repent? See, just think for a moment about this. We'll work around the groups rather than just do it in our groups for time's sake. What response can we expect when telling people to repent? And when can who tell whom to do what? And how can we call upon people to repent? Second question takes a little moment or two to think about, doesn't it? But let's do the first one because that's easy. What, what, what response do you expect when you tell people to repent? Shock. Shock? Defensive? Yes, because you're saying to them, look, you're going the wrong way. Stop what you're doing. Go back the other way. So they like to be defensive. They can even be hostile, right? Yeah, they can be really great. There's a humility which enables to say, thank you very much, I didn't know I was in such danger. But now you point the shark out, I will get out of the water. Yeah, it can be that. But when can who tell whom to do what in our society at the moment? Um, leave the when for a moment. Who can tell whom to do something? No one, except Instagram influencers. influencers. They can tell people where to get lost, yes. Anonymous ones, yes. People in authority can, can't they? Parents can tell children, right? Teachers can tell students, to some extent. I can tell you. No. It's when <laughs> who can tell whom it's got to do with an authority relationship, yeah? And so governments can tell people. You've got to wear a mask. But people don't like being told by authorities, do they? It gets their back up. In fact, the best way to get the people to wear the mask is to explain to them about it and advise and encourage and get people to make their own decision to wear the mask rather than 
threaten them with police action. But who can tell whom to do what? What is it that you can tell people to do? Anything? Everything? I mean, in one sense you can, but in one sense you can get shot for doing it too, can't you? What are the things that you can tell people they should do? Something they already agree with, yes. If they're in danger, yes. Imminent danger, you know? The sharks, yes? Something beneficial for them and others, that's right. You see the problem in our society today, people, other societies, other days may be exactly the same, people don't want to be told what to do. That's, that's the no-no, to tell people what they should or shouldn't do. Something totally minor, you know, like, would you just pick up that pin top there? Right? Right? That's you see. <laughs> that you can do because it, it just doesn't matter much, does it? Or something a real imminent danger. Look out! Now the rocks are falling. Yes, you can do that. Or because you've got the relationship to do it, like you're the father or the mother over the child, you can do it. That's when... But generally, telling people they've got to repent, well, it's not picking up a pen top. And who are you to tell them what's right or wrong? And what authority have you got? And what danger are they feel like they're in? The person who wants to tell you to do your own thing will always be popular. The person who tells you the thing you're doing is self-destructive, you must stop it, is not going to be popular. So, how can we call upon people to repent? Let me give you a few clues. Number one, don't self-censor. Don't self-censor. Talk God talk to outsiders. Talk God talk to outsiders. Offer to pray with them. Pray for them. I tell you any problem, anyone ever tells me any problem, I say, oh, that's really sad. Let me pray for you about it. I don't think, I can't remember the last time anybody said to me, please don't. But once we're praying about it, then God is in the conversation, isn't he? The relationship has changed. Right? And our care is being shown to people. But we tend to self-censor. When we talk to Christians, we talk one language. When we talk to non-Christians, we talk another language. Don't do it. Just talk God talk all the time. Two, don't wait for deep relationships before you talk to people. Most evangelism is done with associates, with strangers. The closer you are to a person, the slower you've got to travel. That's why family evangelism is very slow. Hitchhike evangelism, go for the jugular immediately. Right? Uh, friends, don't hitchhike. It's a very dangerous, silly thing to do. Uh, but don't wait for deep relationships because life is too short. That brings me to number three, urgency. I visited a lady uh, last, uh, over the weekend, uh, who's turned 100. Um, you don't often get chances to talk, but she's a lovely Christian lady. And uh, she was very interested in that, uh, really from a Christian point of view. She's a fierce evangelist. Um, she, she said to me, I'm deaf. There was nothing wrong with the mind. The body's packing up, but the mind is as sharp as a tack. She said, I'm deaf now, you've got to speak up. 
So I said, okay, I'll speak a little louder for you. She said, oh, that's good, because I like all the people in the ward to hear what we're talking about. <laughs> and she said, especially praying, it's really good, because there's a lot of people who aren't Christians, and she's talking louder and louder, and they're hearing, and she said, we've got to get them into the gospel, and the way to do it is have Christian friends who will speak loudly enough for the whole ward to hear. And she said to me, lady, you know the trouble with young people today? Uh, I'm one of the young people in her view. <laughs> she said, oh, the trouble with the young people today? I said, no, what's that? She said, they lack urgency. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting idea. And then I thought, yeah, well, you think you're lacking urgency because at 100 you haven't got much time left, have you? But that's not what she meant. She meant the non-Christian hasn't got much time left. And you've got to be urgent with them. So... I pass on my dear friends urgency and pray loudly publicly. In general, to answer that middle question, the older person can speak to the younger. But in general, the powerless person can speak to the powerful. Once you become a boss, you can't easily evangelise your workers. But the worker can evangelise the boss. It's one of the problems of having power because you are in power, you can't use your position of power outside the particular parameters in which it's been set up. Very sad. But that's why children's work, youth work, Sunday school work, uh, beach missions, camps, it's always been a great place for us to evangelise. Summerfest. Get involved in it while you can in the years you've got. Number five I've got here is preaching is really valuable. This is where communal evangelism is good and preaching is really good because preaching draws the line in the sand. It's easier for me to speak to a big crowd and say, you need to repent, than it is to speak to Zephyr, you need to repent. That is a very personal thing when I'm speaking to you. It's also personal when I'm speaking to you all but it's not the same degree of being personally intrusive. And you can sit there and think, no, I don't, or yes, I do. And that's why the preacher can draw the line in the sand. That's why good preachers are necessary, and good preachers are really clear preachers. Preachers who absolutely make it completely clear as to the way of salvation. It's also why good preachers need congregational members who will do the personal work to fill it, fix up. Over the years I've had all kinds of people really angry with my preaching. Really, really angry with what I've said. And that's fantastic because they're the people that my friends in the congregation have led to Christ. The people who are really angry. Because they're the ones whose consciences have been pricked and who are upset. The ones who yawn and say, oh yeah, he was interesting, <laughs> they haven't heard the message, have they? They haven't got it. But the ones who go home saying, why did, you know, he, he shouldn't say that, he's got no right to say that. There, my friends, is your opportunity to share the gospel with them personally. And I've done you a great service in helping you with that. Number one, two, three, what are we up to six? Don't propose on the first date. Don't propose, I mean, hey, you can try if you like. 
you know, it might have a success rate. I had a friend come to church with us at one church called John. He came from overseas. He was told that marriages weren't arranged in Australia. You had to ask the girl yourself. So with this piece of advice, he went to church every Sunday and sat down next to girls and asked them if they'd like to be married. And so every Sunday I had girls coming up to say, there's a weird man over there who's just asked me to marry him. And I said, did you? I say, yes. Uh, no, I didn't say that. I, and so I'd go and talk to John and say, no, that, that's not how you do it, mate. And after two or three years, John went back to his home country and his family organised a wife for him. And he never... It's a very complicated process that we're talking about here. You see, don't propose on the first date. He didn't even get the first date before he proposed. But don't procrastinate on your proposal. You know, going out for three years, five years, seven years, eight years, what on earth are you doing? That's ridiculous. Don't waste your years on such a person. If the man, girls, if the man doesn't propose within 12 months, drop him, move on. <laughs> He's a waste of space. Uh, forget it. You're wasting your years with such a person. Move on. Men, if you don't propose within a year, what, what more do you need to know about a woman? Well, what, what's the point of going out any longer? That, that's a ridiculous notion. So you don't propose on the first date, but make sure you don't procrastinate on the proposal. Evangelism is like that, you see. You know, the first time a person's ever talked to you about it is not necessarily the best time to say, look, give your whole life to Christ Jesus now. But you can, it might work, sometimes it has. Just likewise, there's some people who the first time they see her, she, she wants... It's possible, right? but that's unlikely. But... Don't say, well, I'll just keep on making a better relationship, better relationship, better relationship. I'll never jeopardise the relationship by telling them they need to repent. I'll just... Because the longer you leave it like that, the more they think you accept the way they're living in hostility to God. And the more shocking it is to find out that you actually don't believe what they're doing is right in any part of their life. That's, you can't do that. You've got to actually... So... How do you challenge? How do you propose? Uh, how to propose? You know how to propose to marriage, don't you? You know, you go through that procedure. You've seen it on the movies a thousand times. People have instructed you what you do. You've got to have a ring. You've got to be willing to kneel down. You must be young enough to still be able to kneel down and get up afterwards and all these kinds of things, you see. You, you've been taught how to propose. But how do you propose repentance to someone? I want to suggest to you that invitation or question is the way rather than bald statement. So, what kind of questions? Would you like to pray a prayer about this now? Would you like to become a Christian now? Or, is there any reason not to pray this kind of prayer to become a Christian now. Have you got some kind of obstacle that would keep you away from becoming a Christian? Or why don't you take this step? Why don't you do it now? Or would you like me to show you how to become a Christian? Would you like me to show you what's involved in becoming a Christian? Or, 
do you want to pray now with me right now about this would you like me to pray for you would you like to pray with me or would you like to take this little prayer home and pray at home for yourself later on says any number of questions but remember what Paul said five things what are the five things hook hold humor hang hit and the two that you've got to really prepare the hook and the hit this is preparing the hit if you haven't thought out some of the ways of saying it when the time comes you don't know what to say and you know what you say when you don't know what to say don't you there's one of two things either nothing or something stupid (laughs) there's your option at that stage so think out what can I say how do I ask the question that enables them because consent is an important element of this you see so I'm not bullying them into it I'm inviting them into it inviting them to make that decision and offering to help them make the question make the decision now there's one last point to be made about this very very important point one of the hardest ones especially for talkative people once you've asked the question the next thing you've got to do is shut up and don't say anything see in negotiations when a proposition is put forward a proposal is put forward you leave it silent because the next person who speaks loses it's just it's just it's a business principle here it's a it's a selling principle I say would you like to buy this car whoever speaks next loses Uh, as soon as he says no I'm not sure I want that why is that so I've now got something to come back at him or yeah maybe I would I've got something to come back but if he doesn't say anything I say well it is a nice car isn't it then he can come back at me no I don't think so whoever speaks next is in control of the conversation the silence is killing would you like to pray this prayer a minute feels like an hour (laughs) you just got to wait for them to think through whether they want to or not give them the space to make the decision and what they say next gives you the option of what to say next make your proposal when you've made it shut up let them make their choice their decision all right do you want to ask any questions